Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going we're gonna to start. Uh, we're winding toward uh, Rosh Hashanah, but very much involved with Elul right now. We just had Parshas Kitavo, and uh, I want to share some various ideas. Um, first, um, maybe we'll just uh, go over very briefly a couple of thoughts from Shabbos. It says uh, in the beginning of Parshas Kitavo that you have to take your fruits and put them in a basket and bring them to the base of Migdash. So I wanted to say just very, very, very quickly that your fruits are your mitzvahs, basically. And you have to take your mitzvahs. You have to think about all the good things that you did over the past year. And you have to collect them. And you have to bring them to the base of Migdash. So Rabbi Wolfson brings down in Amunah Sitecha an amazing gematria. The base of Migdash is the same numerical equivalent as Rosh Hashanah. So you're taking all of your mitzvahs you're collecting them, and you're bringing them to Rosh Hashanah. Something, something, something important. In other words, we have to have something to present. And that idea is even more deeply presented once we get to Slichos. Slichos are those additional prayers that we say really as we get to the homestretch to Rosh Hashanah. The Sephardim are already saying them in the beginning of Chodesh Elul, the month of Elul, and the Ashkenazim say them like pretty much a few days before before Rosh Hashanah. But you see something really like way out in terms of how the Ashkenazim measure how many is the right amount of how many is the right amount of days to say uh, before Rosh Hashanah. And the answer is four days. You have to have a minimum of four days of Slichos before Rosh Hashanah. And the reason is because a Korban an offering, before you bring it to the base of Migdash, has to be checked for four days to make sure that there are no blemishes in it before you bring it to the base of Migdash. So that, all of a sudden, is like very intense, if you think about it, because that means that we very much ourselves are offerings that we're bringing to the base of Migdash. So that minimum of four days is applying to us in a very deep, real way. So, so we are offering ourselves, but we have to Present our mitzvahs also. And, um, and uh, just, to, just to go over something, it just kind of came to me yesterday while I was saying it, the moment I was saying it, but I was just trying to try to communicate the level of miraculousness of what, what fruit is exactly. We take it for granted, you know. One of the definitions of a miracle is something that's just happening all of the time. So, because all of life is a miracle. Life is an ongoing miracle. And not in the platitudinous sense that, oh, it's a miracle. (laughs) It is a miracle. It actually is a miracle. Because the world is constantly being reinvented and created every single moment, every single nanosecond. And if you think that's just, um, just something that we're saying, bear in mind that we say this thought explicitly two times in the beginning of Shachris, between Baruch Hu and Shema. I mean, and there's no, you know, that's, that's a very short distance between Baruch Hu and Shema in the morning davening. And this thought is said two times, all right? How great are your works, Hashem? You make them all with wisdom. The world is filled with your possessions. Am I reading from the right place here? Oh, it's even before then, well... Okay, here we go. Hamayir la'arts v'la'adarum v'la'abarachamim v'tuvo mechadish v'cho yom tamid ma'asei v'reishis. 
It's right after, okay? He who illuminates the earth with, and those who dwell upon it with compassion and in his goodness renews daily, perpetually, the work of creation. Okay? The first thing that we say, basically, once chakras officially starts after Baraku, is that Hashem is making and remaking the world every single moment. Okay? Let's see. Uh, and then we say it again. Okay, this is the paragraph that starts right after we say, Baruch Shem Kavod, or Baruch Kavod Hashem Mim Komo. Okay? We say, For He alone effects mighty deeds, makes new things is master of war, sows kindness, makes salvations flourish, creates cures, is too awesome of praise, is the Lord of wonders. In his goodness, he renews daily, perpetually, the work of creation. We say it again, two times, again and again. Amazing. So, Hashem is creating and recreating the world every moment, which means, here's the bottom line, every single moment is an independent miracle. Every single moment of life is an independent miracle. You're traveling through life from miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle. So why don't we see it? Because if, you know, imagine if all you eat is chocolate and someone says, hey, you want some chocolate? It's like, all right. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if it's all chocolate, if it's all miracles, the idea of a miracle kind of gets a little bit devalued. But if you kind of keep this expanded consciousness, you're blowing your mind every single moment. Listen to this. Reb Shlomo says, you know, by Hasidus, when you talk about the four sons by the, by the Passover Seder, who do the Hasidim hold is the highest of the four sons? So Reb Shlomo says the one who can't even ask. Now he's usually considered, that's the fourth son, that's usually considered the one who is the lowest. But the Hasidim hold that he's the highest. So I heard Reb Shlomo explain it in the following way. Why can't he even ask? Because he's blowing his mind over creation. He's like, there's a God, and he took us out of Egypt, and he performed miracles for us. He is so blowing his mind, he can't even begin to ask a question, because he's so expanded, right? So if we stay in this place of, of expansion, of expansiveness, then we can begin to appreciate and see all these incredible miracles. Okay, so getting back to fruit. Getting back to fruit. So, so I was saying, imagine you're writing with a pencil, right? You're at your desk, you have a pencil, you put your pencil down, you come back the next morning, and hanging from your pencil is a big, juicy grapefruit. That's pretty miraculous, Right? But that's exactly what happens. It's a piece of wood. What's your pencil? It's a piece of wood. What's a tree? It's a piece of wood. But there we go. Oh, it's a tree. Of course, from that piece of wood, grapes and apples and oranges and peaches come out. Why? It's a piece of wood. It's incredible. It's incredible. So, so there's a degree of miraculousness even to our mitzvahs. Because our mitzvahs are our fruit. So in other words... One of the things that we have to be appreciative of, and this is something where people, I think, where we make a mistake, where we say, Hashem, I did this thing for you. Right? Okay. I'm not saying it's not true. It may have been hard. It may be a very great mitzvah. But we have to realize the fact that Hashem allowed us to do that mitzvah is also a miracle. The fact that the fruit came from the wood, the fact that we were even able to channel this mitzvah into the world, 
That in itself is a, a, an opportunity. Thank you, God, for allowing me to do this mitzvah. Right? That's, that's miraculous. Fruit came from wood. This miracle, this chesed, this divine life flowed through me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Okay. So, you know, just to throw in something else very quick. Something I noticed. Kitavo. Chaf. Taf. Kitavo. The first letters of those two words is 420, which is the amount of time that the second base of Migdash was there. And we said, the second base, we said that base of Migdash is the Gematria of Rosh Hashanah. So here's another hint connecting this Parsha to Rosh Hashanah, which is coming. Okay. So now, I want to share with you something, a, a piece of Agadita from Gomorrah Baba Basra, from uh, page 74b, right? Also known as Ayin Dalit. Uh And it's really intense. It's really beautiful, I think. And I'm going to do the uh, commentary of the Malbum on it. But before I say that, I want to just share one, one thought on Rosh Hashanah. And um, you see, in a very, very deep way, right, basically, we said that Hashem is bringing the world into existence every single moment. So, and yet, that's pretty deep, right? But on an, on an even deeper level, on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem makes the decision whether He wants to bring the world into existence every single moment. In other words, the world has a contract, so to speak, for a year. Some would even say for seven days. The Or HaChayim on Kiddush is famous for saying that we renew with Hashem the whole creation by Kiddush time, every Shabbos, right? But maybe it's also on a yearly level also. Either way, what happens on Rosh Hashanah is a divine decision about bringing the world back into existence again. So with that very profound, sort of existential kind of reality before us, I'd like to use it to explain a mysterious piece that the Ramah says in the Shulchan Aruch by Basr Vachalov. He brings down a custom and he says that there's no reason for it. But you know, in Torah, the surest way to get lists and lists and lists of commentaries is to write down that there's no reason for something. <laughs> That's your greatest guarantee that you're going to get extensive commentary. And um, on this alone, we see the commentary of the Taz and we see the Bach and we see the Rashal and we see Many, many commentaries explaining exactly why it is that this thing happens. Okay? Now, what is this custom? This custom is something that the Ramah says is, is kept in very few places, but the Ramah says, he says, I keep this custom. And he uses the word ani, which is interesting. He, 
he, it's uh, unusual for at least for the amount of Ramah that I've learned in Shulchan Aruch, that he says that he refers to himself in first person, right in the middle of the text itself. So this is one of those instances. So something, something intense is going on here. Okay? Now, you'll hear what the custom is, and perhaps to your ears it will sound very, very, very trivial. But I want to give my own explanation to it, and I want to suggest in light of Hashem bringing the world back into creation, that it's functioning on a very, very, very deep level. So, here it is. You see, there are a lot of halachas concerning the cover of a pot. You have two entities. You have the pot itself that you cook the food in, and then you have the cover of the pot. And there are all sorts of implications for the pot and for the cover of the pot. For instance, dealing with meat and dairy. Let's say it's a, let's say it's a meat pot and a drop of milk falls on the side of the pot or a drop of milk falls in the pot. Well, these are um, halakhas that we're more used to. We're, we're used to that, that, that idea. A lot of people aren't aware of the fact that there are all sorts of halachas relating to the cover of the pot as well. Let's say the pot is covered and it's, let's say it's a meat pot and let's say a drop of milk falls on the cover of the pot. Well, that's a whole separate area of halacha. Now you have, you have a whole another um, realm of halacha which relates to whether the pot is what's called or the cover of the pot is called a benyomo or an eno benyomo. So what, what does that mean? A benyomo means was that pot or the cover of that pot was, since we're talking about covers, I'll start just talking about covers now. Was the cover of that pot used within the last 24 hours? Or that would be called a benyomo. So what does benyomo mean? Uh, a, a son of the day. Meaning it was in use that day. It's a child of that day. A benyomo. So that pot cover was used that day. So why is that significant? And then, of course, you have the eno benyomo, which means a 24-hour period elapsed where the cover of the pot wasn't used. Why in, 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 in kashrus is that important? Because the pot itself or the cover of the pot, if you cook meat or if you cook dairy in it, it gets infused with, with what's called blios, which is called the, the essence of that foodstuff. So if you cook dairy in the pot, well, the milk taste gets infused in the walls of the pot for a 24-hour period. And then you have something called lifgam tam begam. Hopefully I said that correctly. And what that means is that basically the lifgam, the taste sort of got downgraded. It disappeared a little bit. It has sort of a negative flavor now. So it's not really the taste of the thing that got infused in it. Okay? So, so in terms of kashrus, it's not as significant if 24 hours have passed because it's not the real taste in the wall of the thing that's entering into the food when you cook the new thing in it. Okay, hopefully that wasn't confusing and you're still with me. So let's return to this idea of the pot cover. So the pot cover will have one of two statuses. It will either be a ben yomo, it was used within the last 24 hours, or it will be an eno ben yomo, 
it will not have been used within the last 24 hours. Okay? And what did we say? Ben Yomo means a child of time, a child of the day. Right? So if it's a Ben Yomo, it was used. If it's an Eno Ben Yomo, it's not a child of time. Right? It's outside of time somehow. Okay? All right, remember, we're talking about the creation and recreation of the universe now. So now we're ready for what the Ramah brings down. You ready? He says, there's a custom in very few places, which is that if you have the cover of a pot, which is an Eno Ben Yomo, right? It hasn't been used in the last 24 hours. The custom is to treat it as though it was used in the last 24 hours. So seemingly, that's a stricter level. Because if something hasn't been used in the last 24 hours, then, then you can be more makele with it. You can have more leniencies with it because the taste within the pot has pretty much gone away and you don't have to worry about mixing milk and meat if there was a problem. Okay? So this is uh, what's called a chumrah. This is called a, um, a, an additional sort of uh, stringency. Okay? So again, the Ramah says, that there's a custom, and he says, I keep this custom, and it's practiced in very few places. He says, but if there's the cover of a pot, which hasn't been used in the last 24 hours, if it's an Eno Ben Yomo, you're to treat it as though it is a Ben Yomo, as though it has been used within the last 24 hours. All right, so now what does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> right? Okay, so now listen, the connection is actually very strong. What's the word for pot in Hebrew? Kisui. Kisui means a covering. Okay? Now, Rosh Hashanah is known as the covered day. In fact, the, the psalm of the day for Thursday, we read this key line on Rosh Hashanah itself. We say, Bakiseh. But kisei is the same word as kisui. It's the exact same word. It means covered over. Okay? It says, blow the shofar at the moon's renewal. Right? At the time appointed for our festive day. Because it is a decree for Israel, judgment day. Okay? So it's, it's referred to as, as this covered day. Why is it called this covered day? So... There are a lot of deep explanations. I'll give you a few of them. So in other words, just to make sure that we're communicating, this word kisui, which is also this word for the pot cover, is also the same word that we use to refer to Rosh Hashanah, this covered day. It's called a covered day for a few reasons. One, the fact that the judgment occurs on Rosh Hashanah is something that's only hinted at in the Chumash itself. The true nature of the Yom Adin, of this day of judgment, it's only, it's the fact that in itself, that it is in and of itself, the day of judgment, that in itself is something that's shrouded and covered over. Also, what our judgment will be, this is something that's also covered and shrouded over. We don't know. 
You know, I have a running joke with my wife. When I come home Rosh Hashanah, she says, how did you daven? How was the davening? And I say, I'll tell you next year. <laughs> right? Because I don't know. <laughs> what the judgment will be, we don't know. On maybe an even deeper level, it says that the sun and the moon are two witnesses to our activities. And on Rosh Hashanah, the moon, because it's the first of the month, it's a new moon, the moon isn't really there yet. There's only one witness. And so, so there's no Adam, there are no witnesses to testify against us. This is an aspect of Hashem's mercy, that He basically cancels any witnesses who might witness and testify against us. Because the moon isn't there, it's covered over. And so you can't have, you can't have a judgment against us. Okay. So now I want to add another level and tell you with the connection with this, this, this custom of treating the pot cover like it is a benyomo, like it was used in the last 24 hours, even if it wasn't used in the last 24 hours. So now listen to this, okay? Now we're coming to the the fullness of the thought right now. We said that on a very deep level, on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem is deciding whether or not to bring the world back into existence or not. He does that on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is, is called the day that's covered. It's the same word as the pot cover. So what does the Ramah say? He says that you should treat a pot cover which is an enu ben yomo, which is not a child of time. This pot cover, which is the same word as Rosh Hashanah, you should treat Rosh Hashanah when it's not a child of time. What does that mean? That Hashem is not bringing it back into existence. He is not infusing it with more time. He's not renewing its existence within the realm of time and space. That you should treat an, a, a kisui, a cover, again, which is the same word as Rosh Hashanah. You should treat it, if it's not a child of time, an eno ben yomo, as a ben yomo, as a child of time. In other words, if the world itself did not get judged to be renewed, we have to treat an eno ben yomo as a ben yomo. We have to decide, we have to decide through our action to take that day, that Rosh Hashanah, that covered over day, that cover, and to treat it as a Ben Yomo, as a child of time. We're bringing the world back into existence. Okay. So let's move on to Baba Basra. So, there's a, a whole series of really wild agatitas. Agatitas are, um, it's, uh, well, you'll hear really a, what, what agatita is in a moment, if you don't know the word yet. They're, let's, let's call them parables for now, although I'm sure that's a terrible English word for this, but... They're very deeply encoded lessons. Very, very deeply encoded lessons. Okay? 
where Chazal, where the sages of the Gomorrah, are giving over amazing explanations of existence, but they're giving it over in, a, in an encoded fashion. Now, there's a whole series of these. Um, they're all over the Gomorrah, is the truth. But there's a whole series of these to be found in Masechta Baba Basra, um, in around 73, 74, around that area. And many, many commentators, the, basically the, the all-star list of Torah commentators, have explained these over the centuries. And they've given actually different explanations of these. And it's, the, it's, it's an amazing field of study. Um, everyone from the, the Malbum to the Vilna Gon to Rebbe Nachman to the Maharal to the Marasha, there's a, an amazing wealth of commentary on, 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 on these Agadatas. And you can get all of really Jewish philosophy by, by studying these things. By the way, there's an excellent, one of the best, best books in, 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 uh, available among the treasure chest of English Torah books. There's a book called The Juggler and the King, which is I highly, highly recommend. And it is the Vilna Gon's commentaries on many of these Agadatas. And you, you can get in just a, really a few pages Jew, just the whole Jewish worldview, just about. It's, it's really, really worth getting, um, especially if you respond to this type of learning, right? It's very um, associative. Okay, so I'm, I'm selecting one. This is, um, it says here in the art scroll that it's the 19th in the series, okay? And it goes like this. It says, um, Rav Yehuda the Ethiopian related the following story. Once we were going in a ship, and we saw in the water a certain precious stone, which was surrounded by a sea monster. A diver descended from our ship to bring it. The sea monster came and wanted to swallow the ship. A female raven came and chopped off the sea monster's head. So much blood gushed into the sea that the water became changed into blood. Another sea monster came and took the precious stone and hung it on the dead sea monster, and it came alive. It again came and wanted to swallow the ship. The bird came again and chopped off, the, chopped off its head. Thereupon the diver took the precious stone and threw it onto the ship. We had with us in the ship some salted birds to eat. The diver put the stone on top of them. They came alive, took the stone, and flew off with it. That's the end of this piece of a God. <laughs> All right, so I'm sure you need no explanation. <laughs> All right, um, so, so I'm going to learn with you the, uh, the, the Mabum's commentary on this, okay? And it's brought down here in the, the art scroll. Uh, and so, so it's uh, very beautiful. So the first thing we have to understand is what's the ship? So the Vilna Gon in his commentary on Yonah explains that the ship is the body. We are the ship. Okay? And why are we the ship? Because a ship transports goods from one port to another port. And so we ourselves transport our mitzvahs from this world to the next world. So we are the ship. Furthermore, the waves that slap at the ship and try to overturn the ship are the tribulations of this world. All the troubles that we go through through our life, that's the waves smashing against the ship. 
Okay? Now, the stone, what is the stone, the precious stone that the diver wants to bring back to the ship? The diver is the extension of the, of the ship, all right? The stone is the intellect. It's wisdom, according to the Malbum. And why do we want to bring the stone, the intellect, to the ship? Because we want to guide our ship properly. If we have, if we have intellect, excuse me, if we have intellect, we will be able to guide our ship properly. Okay? With wisdom. Not a simple feat to cross the ocean. Now, what's the problem? The problem is, is that this precious stone is guarded by a sea monster. What is the sea monster? The sea monster is the Yetzirah. It's the negative inclination. It's that thing which wants to mess you up, basically. So, so the Mabam explains that, that the, as the story unfolds, this initial sea monster is that which appeals to the pleasures of the body. Right? It wants to seduce you, basically. And that can take many, many different forms. And, uh, and so, so what happens? The raven comes and chops off the head of the sea monster. Now, since the raven is kind of like the, the most practical aspect, it's like the hero of the story in a way, let's just hold off what the raven stands for for a moment until we get to the end here. But the raven comes, and it's specifically the female raven, you'll see why that uh, is important at the end, comes and chops off the head of the sea monster. Okay, fine. So now the diver now is trying to get to it. Right? Remember, the sea monster wants to swallow the ship. The eight Sahara wants to wipe us out. doesn't want us just to make a mistake. It just wants to just make us null and void. So the diver tries to get the, the stone again, but what happens? A second sea monster comes. And the second sea monster gets to the precious gem first, puts it on the decapitated first sea monster and brings it back to life. And then that revived sea monster tries to swallow the ship again. So, what is that? So now listen to this. Very interesting. You see, first the Sahara, the, the negative inclination, tries to seduce you by making you lazy or kind of preoccupied with materialistic things, or however it works on your physicality. Laziness. But then, the sea monster, in this, in this, in this piece of Agatha, it's now the second sea monster, something very interesting happens. It gets control of the gem. It gets control of wisdom. And it uses it to revive the first sea monster which then attacks you again. Listen to this. Says the Malbum, that now the Sahara becomes even more sneaky. It now uses your own intellect against you. Because remember, the gem represents the intellect. It represents wisdom. 
Now it won't just try to seduce you physically, but it will try to trick you in terms of false logic. Right? You know, there's a famous uh, claw, a famous foundation in Torah, that, that, that if a person makes a mistake once, or does an Avera, whatever it is, once, and then a second time, by the third time that they do this Avera, they're convinced that it's now a mitzvah. And I heard someone give this explanation. It's kind of a hardcore explanation, but you'll hear the point. A man, chas v'shalom, a million times, commits adultery. Then he does it a second time. The third time, he's actually saving his marriage. <laughs> he has convinced himself that this is actually allowing my marriage to be a better marriage, and now I'm going to be a better husband, and this is actually keeping me in my marriage. Wow. That was a, some great magic trick, huh? Right? So, so the Yetzirah, first it, it gets you through physical pleasure, and then it convinces, it confuses your mind in such a way that it becomes intellectually justifiable and even correct. So that's how the second sea monster, right, takes the gem, puts it on the first sea monster, revives it, and then it attacks the ship again. Now remember, you know, there's something, you see, we have to remember something, which is the Sahara is actually an angel. It's an angel of Hashem, it works for Hashem, it wants us to say no to it, right? We say that when the, remember the Gemara says that the, the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, the Malachamavis, which attacks the body, the angel of not so much, right? Not life. And then the Sutton, the heavenly accuser, that's all one force. That's all the same thing. That's all one force, okay? And it all works for God. And when it comes to us, if we say yes to it, says we rip our clothes, it rips its clothes and cries if we say yes to it. And if we say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So you have to understand, it's not an independent force of God. There's not good and evil as separate forces. That would mean that there are two powers in the world, which goes against the basic foundation of Judaism. We say there's only one God, which means evil works for good, and evil wants you to say no to it. Okay. But, the essential point I'm trying to bring out is that it is an angel, which means that it renews itself against us every single day. So you see that the raven cuts the head off the sea monster, and what happens to that chopped off sea monster? It gets revived. There's a second sea monster, and the first sea monster gets revived. It renews itself. It, it keeps coming. Okay, so we shouldn't be distraught if we say, oh, why am I still thinking about that? Or, oh, why am I still doing that? Or, oh, why does the wrong thing still make perfect sense to me or even more sense than the right thing? It, it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. It doesn't stop. It doesn't get tired. It's an angel. Okay, so we have to just have to know that about it, you know? And then cut ourselves some slack. We go, okay, listen. I get tired, you don't. You're doing your thing, I understand, you know. I have Rachmanis for you. You have to do your job, but I also have to do my job and not say yes to you. Okay, so, so, but how, how does that happen? How do we not say yes to it? Ah, so that's, that's an art in itself.
So now we can understand what the female raven is, who cuts the head off the sea monster. So, so in Torah literature, the female raven is distinct among all the birds in the animal kingdom. And you'll see something, a very, it's a very, very amazing application of it here. Because generally speaking, we're about to say what we understand to be a negative trait. And yet this negative trait, because this, the female raven is called cruel. There's an aspect of cruelty to it. We'll see how this cruelty actually in this situation is a very positive thing. Okay? What, is, what does the Torah say about the female raven? It abandons its children. And it leaves its children to be taken care of by God. Right? And that's not considered like, oh, it's a great believer. That's not how it's treated. It abandons its children. Hashem takes care of the, the offspring of the, of, the, of the raven. And the raven just goes and it flies away. Okay? Has its babies. It flies away. Ah, so now the Malvin is saying, basically, we have to harness, harness this attribute of the female raven in the way it cuts off the head of the serpent. You see, one's thoughts are also called one's children. All right? So, so, so you get this thought in your head. The female raven comes and cuts the head off it. In other words, it cuts the head off your... It separates the mother from the children. It separates you from that line of thinking. And it goes and it flies away. It abandons that thought. It abandons its progeny. In other words, a famous explanation of the way the Yetzirah works. Very simple. And it's in, in its simplicity is its beauty. You're walking down the street and someone, an acquaintance, waves to you from the other side of the street. That's how the Yetzirah introduces itself to you in your head. So now is the critical moment. Do you wave back? Well, you don't want to be rude, right? <laughs> So you wave back, and then it comes over, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of a conversation. You're engrossed in this thought, whatever this thought is. So, one has to be, if one is interested in spiritual refinement, and in climbing levels, and in dveikaskite, in cleaving to Hashem, and is serious about their heavenly service, one will become increasingly sensitive to the way they think. And if they, if a negative or an inappropriate thought pops into their head, if a person is spiritually unaware and doesn't know this teaching, doesn't know this tool, the average person will go, oh, that's funny. I'm thinking about so-and-so from such and such a period in my life. I guess I'm missing that thing. You think the thought comes from you. And you go, well, if I'm thinking about that, I must want to think about that. So then you explore that line of thinking, and then who knows what? (laughs) Days, weeks, months later, who knows what's born from that dwelling? Right? But if a person knows this teaching... What happens is the thought comes into their head 
and you don't say, oh, that's just me reminiscing or longing or pining or whatever it is. That's the HR, that's the sea monster <laughs> trying to swallow the ship. And then you, part, you harness the power of the female raven. You cut off its head. You fly away. You don't wave back to your acquaintance from across the street. It waves to you. You put your hands in your pocket. You look forward and you keep on walking. Right? And that's the tool that's being brought out here. Now, like everything, this takes practice and this is a this takes mastery. This is not just, okay, now I know the key and I can do it and I'm, I'm finished. I'm, no, all of these type of things, especially one's relationship with their thoughts and things like this, this is a very, this is a very deep and involved practice. So if one tries to um, dedicate themselves in this way and be aware of this, one must be very, very, very patient with themselves because this is really, this is an, an, an advanced level, really. A necessary level, by the way. But I just want to caution against anyone becoming frustrated. They should just understand that this is a process, an involved process, but will pay off very well. Okay. Now we have an amazing PS to this story, okay, which is that the diver now recovers the gem, throws it onto the ship, and it's placed on these salted birds these preserved birds, which then wake up, right? Because this, this, this gemstone has the power to revive. The intellect, wisdom, has the power to revive. And then these birds fly away. What is that? What is that piece? So listen to this. Now I'm reading from the Art Scroll Commentary. Eventually, the diver succeeded and took the intellect to his own ship. By using one's intellect to the utmost... One can revive ideas that have long been dormant in one's mind. Thus, the diver discovered that the stone could revive preserved fish. Okay, so, you know, here it says uh, salted birds, here it says preserved fish, whatever it is. The point is, is that this is long dormant wisdom. So when your mind is not now being preoccupied with nonsense, and you have taken intellect, the precious stone, and you've brought it back to your ship, which is you, you now are able to harness not just the proper path now, but all of the potential and all of the thoughts that have long been dormant within you, long been asleep within you, you'll be able to revive and maximize and channel for the good. And that's the awakening of this thing that's preserved which is an amazing thought, which is that one's dormant potential doesn't disappear, but it remains preserved inside of you, that you can reach back and tap into again. That in itself is an amazing thing. So if there's something that you had a great love for at one point in your life, once you begin to master yourself, you can go back and revive this thing, this talent within you. Right? This is... This is something very, very special. Um, okay, so <laughs> I guess we're done. <laughs> <laughs>
Say it again. It flies away. You're saying it flies away. Okay, so okay, so I'm glad you asked that. So just for clarity's sake, it, it ascends. It ascends. So that flying away is not that the, that the um, potential gets awakened within you, and now all of a sudden it's gone again. That's not it. It's that it, 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 goes, it goes up. Meaning, it, 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 in other words, you now have wings. You, you now can fly with it. Yeah. Are there any other questions on that? Yeah, go ahead. And, and the wisdom or the gem yeah. are taken up also? Is, is that the idea? Uh, well, I guess once you have the gem, you have the gem. I mean, it says, I guess it says that it, does it say it flies away with it? Yeah, but I think that it's sort of like, um, the way, if I can give my own uh, explanation, I, I don't think that you lose it. I think that it's sort of like now you go to the next quantum level with it. You know, so now you're advancing with it. Yeah. Um, and it, well, you know, I, I'll just maybe just uh, just just close with with one more thought, with your permission, which is that um, you know we were saying that that we have to take our fruit and put it in our basket and bring it to the base of Migdash. And that the base of Migdash is Gematria Rosh Hashanah. So we're taking all of our deeds and we're collecting them, we're remembering what it is we've accomplished and we're bringing ourselves as an offering. And let's just concentrate on really using these last days. Bless him. Does anyone know when Chai Elul is? Is it tonight? It's Monday? It's tonight and tomorrow, yeah. It's tonight, so... Tonight is Chai Elul, which is the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov. It's called the birthday of Hasidus. It's a good night to light a candle. Sunday night, Monday. And, uh, you know, to pray that Hashem should open up gates. You know, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting. Everyone knows 18 is Gematria Chai. It's also Gematria Zahav, gold, by the way. Um, you know... I think it's, I think it's interesting that Hashem grants life and makes determinations about life on Rosh Hashanah. So on the 18th of Elul, Chai Elul, it's the birthday of Hasidus. As we go toward Rosh Hashanah, I think the deeper gates are being opened for us, right? Hasidus is the inside of the Torah. Torah is not a spectator sport. This is now already a thought from the Eish Kodesh. It's not a spectator sport. If you're looking at the Torah like it's a book, or you're looking at a Torah from the outside, then you're not participating in the depths of the world. One has to enter into the Torah. You have to enter into the Torah. You yourself are a letter in the Torah. You're already existing within the Torah itself. So don't just stand there and watch yourself. Unite your body and your soul within the Torah. Connect to the true depths of life. And then, you know something? The rest of life just becomes a wild ride. You know? But you're on the wagon instead of being dragged by the wagon. (laughs) Okay. Okay.